This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Oh, oh, oh wow! Don't they know it's the end of the world? Do you want that more dramatic or... Like sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R One O Two Point Seven FM. Ah, uh, yes. Welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse. Um, I've got a really sore throat. Tonight we're going to talk soils with Jackie French. And with me in the studio tonight is Adam Grubb, Kate Dundas and Jed McCartney. Talk amongst yourselves, guys. Oh, Pathetic. You only what? said welcome once. No, I know. I'm really worried about you now. It's all good. <laughs> um, it's good I to sound, see you here anyway. I feel like I should be like at one end of a 1-800 number describing my neckers or something like that. Ooh, I think I'm I might have to sit closest to you. These other two are huddled in the corner as far away uh, as they the can get. The microphone is stretched. You should see the piece of perspex that these guys <laughs> brought in tonight. It's weird. I've got the fear. How are we all, Adam? How's things? Very well. I was up your way yesterday. Yeah. Didn't tell you about it, though, did I? No, you I didn't, figured you didn't want to get drowned out by conversation. <laughs> no, I was stealing. I was taking mushrooms oh, off, right. off the Mount, Mount Macedon. Superb. Yes. Good ones? Oh, it's a beautiful place up there. No, the, it's after, it was Monday after the weekend. There's professional mushroom Mm. Hunters up there, I think. On the oh, weekend, yeah. they really clean it out. Yep. Oh, there's heaps of cars up there. Selling for 60 bucks a kilo down in the What South kind Melbourne of market. mushrooms did you find? I f- oh, we found a few pine mushrooms. We had a bit of a barbecue cook-up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, um, the, uh, what do they call them? The, the Slippery jacks? No, oh, we found a few of those too, but the um, Lactosa Deliciosa. Mm. Yeah. Yum. Are you one of those ones who's like, I went mushroom picking, but I can't tell you where... Uh, trust me, where I went, it is no secret because <laughs> there was the evidence of yeah, pe- people being up there in droves. I think yeah, probably professional teams. Oh. Well, it's a bit like fishing, though, isn't it? Yeah. How are you, Katie? I'm fine. Excellent. And uh, Jed, you'd, you'd have some bite. Are you back? Two weeks absent. I am. Thank you. Yeah, I know. I'm uh, relaxed and rested, and um, thanks mm. to Brendan for filling in for me. Did a cracking job. Um, and the Giro's mm. on, so um, the. Stage 10 tonight, so we're about a week in, a couple of weeks to go. It's just about to get interesting. Uh, first Category 1 climb tonight, and, um, yeah, so by the weekend it'll be well worth sitting up for. Excellent. But you won't be sitting up tonight. But tomorrow you go back to work after a few weeks off. Yeah, Boo. yeah I won't be sitting up tonight. You'll have to watch it for me, Bush. I will. I'll do that. Hey, uh, just a few things. So we uh, we kick off each week and we talk about what we've been looking at, and Jed... Or well, a few of us spotted that Bruce Pascoe, former guest, has just won the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award for his book Dark Emu. I think that's worth a mention, isn't it? He was a brilliant guest. Brilliant uh, guest. Dark Emu being uh, about the idea that indigenous, indig- indigenous Australians practiced pretty sophisticated forms of agriculture and they were mm. more or less wiped from the record 
books because of the uh, unfortunate implication that well that's actually even through European value systems um, uh, th- that we would have to acknowledge that they were using the land. Mm. Yes, which didn't um, fit in with the narrative of the time. Yeah, and in throwing that out, we lost a whole lot of pot- potential um, knowledge for working more closely with the landscape to use it sustainably as well. Mm. Pretty, pretty poignant in terms of what we're talking about tonight with Jackie French. Um, and I didn't give her a proper introduction at the top of the show, but she is a, an acclaimed um, author and gardener. And, a national uh, treasure almost. A national treasure, for sure. Um, but we'll be talking a lot with her about soil tonight, and especially um, gearing the show, if we can, towards um, our listeners in town and in cities about what they can do with their soils in their backyard, often quite compacted and degraded soils in the suburbs. But we can pick her brain for the best solutions to it. Um, but, yeah, Bruce Pascoe's book had uh, amazing accounts in that of early European explorers. I sound like Barry White through these you headphones. Said, there's something about your voice tonight that's really making me sleepy. Yeah. <laughs> I can get another your love, babe. Um, sorry. Uh, yeah, he talked a, a lot of the early settlers coming through and these explorers and surveyors actually described the soil as being so fine and having such a fine tilt that it would just run through the fingers. Mm. You don't really... Uh, you don't really put that into your mind when you think of Australian soils now. You kind of think there was rocky, barren, mm-hmm. concretous-looking things. Mm, indeed. Uh, but what have you dudes been looking at? Uh, I can continue with the soil theme if you like. Yes, do. Mm. do. Well, I uh, mind blown last week Ooh. when I read in the journal Nature this article, which is you know the most prestigious, biggest um, science journal in the world, an article called the contentious nature of soil organic matter. Now, you, you probably want to explain why my mind was blown. You're just like, you nerd. <laughs> what, it, what the claim it makes is that humus, which is the stuff that makes good soil dark, it's the organic matter, and it's the spongy material that you feel under your feet when you walk on good soil, and it absorbs moisture and holds it, and it, uh, it's, it's like the foundation of all good soil practice. Yep. So what else is in there apart from Do, humus? No, the thing, no, the oh. thing is, Ooh. it doesn't exist. Oh. So what I'm talking mm. about was my previous understanding of how soil organic matter worked. Uh, they're just saying, no, that was like for 200 years, soil scientists have been talking about this stuff called humus, but it's actually way more complicated. And what people were describing as this uh, long chain carbon molecule is really an experimental artefact of the way they try and extract organic matter out of the soil. Well, so sorry, what? everybody who talks about soil, even, even you know, in Gardening Australia, every popular um, soil health proponent is going to be talking to you about, you want to build the humus. Mm. Mm. Peter Kandel pronounces the word better than anyone. How do you, can you, can Not you today, next week. I'll okay, next we'll, week. We'll, we'll, we'll hold you to that. Yeah. So, they're, yeah, they're saying... This is really important to understand. They're not saying soil organic matter is unimportant. In fact, mm. there is more carbon in the soil than there is in the atmosphere and all the plants of the earth combined. Actually, two or three times as much. So for climate change modelling, understanding how soil organic matter works is absolutely critical. And unfortunately, we've been using this fairly bodgy model we didn't actually understand it it's really 
you know, it's, it's only modern methods that have allowed us to figure out what's ha- actually happening. The full yeah. implications of how we garden and the way we approach it, I don't know how much it really changes mm. from what people have been promoting and, um, so, and how we've been thinking about it. You but, keep saying soil organic matter. Is there something else in the soil apart from organic matter? Uh, yeah, well, most of soil is made of crushed up rocks. Crushed up rocks, yeah, and then and the hummus the mixes bit, in with there. Just a little bit to of, make the good soil. The stuff that's made out of all the dead things. So poor soil might only be crushed up rocks, or sure. is that just sand? Mm, or poor soil? Poor so, yeah. oh, poor soil. You said, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's te- pure. <laughs> pure. Um, <laughs> yeah, if you don't have organic matter, you do not have good soil. Full stop. Like mm-hmm. you, it, it definitely does all these things. But yeah, it's just amazing that like. That people have been talking about it for 200 years and it doesn't exist. Science mm. moves, but it moves slowly sometimes. <laughs> this, is, this has a bit of a smell about it, about maybe like the climate change denial lobby. Maybe they can completely discredit soil science. Well, they've, they're home and hosed. But you are talking about journal nature. You're not talking about sort of Fox News. No, no. The, I mean, apparently this is a debate that's been going on since the 1880s. Oh. So, so but it, right. there's a culmination of it, you know, with, with mm. modern technology. They took their time. They've taken so their time. So it doesn't exist or it's just called something else and it's well, kind of the Well, it doesn't thing. exist in the soil. It exists if you, through the particular extraction ma- methods, you create it. That's not worth getting that technical. But basically, yeah, mind blown. I think you said that. I'm not sure what I learned. It doesn't sort of change what you do in the garden. (laughs) It doesn't change that Composting and nutrient cycling and all those things are still vital. If anything, I think they're saying that the role of microbes in the soil is even more important than we thought it was. Mm. So when you make your compost, where does hummus fit into that? Yeah, we used to say that was how you made hummus. Yeah. Yeah. But no, you're making (laughs) other forms of organic matter. And Which is still good and still, still important. Still good and still, and still important. Yeah, I think the full repercussions of this are going to take a lot of people talking and thinking about. You're going to have to change your PTC course because that's where I learned about hummus. I know, and I've that's all a lie now. Terrible <laughs> joke that I use because because soil organic matter can solve everything from your pH problems mm. that's to acid to alkaline, um, from your moisture retention um, problems if it doesn't free drain or if it doesn't hold water. Uh, if nutrient holding capacity, soil toxins, throw organic matter at it and they won't be uptaken by your plants as much. Yeah. And so I had this bad gag that, like, if there's a problem, yeah, I'll solve it. It's like the vanilla ice <laughs> of, the, of, the, of the soil world. Well, ironically, I'm black. Yeah. <laughs> and so does that mean vanilla ice isn't real as well? <laughs> Let's hope. Let's, yeah, I feel better about the universe. Indeed. Easy to laugh. He made 12 million that year. Uh, Katie. Um, I, what caught my eye was a little document prepared by the Planning Institute of Australia called Through the Lens, Megatrends Shaping Our Future. So this is all of the big picture stuff that's going to happen, maybe, um, and is happening that's going to change how we plan the city and how we live and what we do and potentially how we work. So we've got a little infographic at the back here. Um, increasing house size is one of them. So the average size of new houses on Australia in 2009 was 219 square metres, which is enormous. It's the biggest in the world, I the believe. The biggest in the world, and that's up from 150 square metres in 1985. So in those that short time, it's 46% larger 
that we're living in in houses. Yeah. So you, you don't have to go to the third world to find drastically smaller houses. Like I think mm-hmm. in England. No, in the UK. Yeah, they're about a third the size of an Australian. Easily. One. I was completely baffled when I first came here and saw yeah. how people lived. And now, now I'm like, I just think it's normal. It's insane. But the knock-on effects that has are loss of back gardens, um, suburban sprawl, etc., etc. So one of these other mega trends is the number of Australians aged 65 and over is projected to more than double by 2054 compared with 2015, which is quite a substantial change. It's going to work well for Barry Manilow sales. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I don't know, because that'll be maybe uh, like the 70s now. Yeah. So a different change. Maybe different. What, yeah. I don't know. There's going to be a well lot more Maybe it'll work well for vanilla rice. Work well. <laughs> <laughs> um, We're bringing him back. So other things around resources, total water consumption in Australia is forecast to rise by 42% by the year 2026 and 76% by the year 2056. And that's compared to 2009 levels. So if you think about the amount of water that we're going to need and that we don't have, um, and the things that we'll need to do now to start planning for the city and planning for that kind of change... Mm. Um, the Food and Agriculture Organisation forecasts that food production will need to increase by 70% to meet 250, uh, 2050 demand, which isn't probably possible the way that we're doing things at the moment. So, mm. again, a huge impact on the, the amount of food that we're going to need for the increasing pop, uh, population. Australia is forecast to experience a 35% growth in total energy consumption by 2030. So, again... Interesting. Mm, so these are all things that are based mega on, trends based on current behaviours. Based on current behaviours and predicted demographics and trends mm. that we're seeing at the moment. Uh, Australia is the lowest, flattest and the driest inhabited continent with an average annual rainfall of only 465 millimetres. Um, so there's, there's basic facts and mega trends coming through this document. I mean, there's some interesting stuff around the future of work. So the trend that we're seeing is a casualisation of the workforce. So more contract, casual and part-time jobs. And what that means for the design of buildings, the way we use public transport, the probably unnecessary peak hour that we see at the moment, like why is everyone travelling at nine and five? It overloads all the public transport systems. Probably an unnecessary thing that we do to ourselves. Um, and then there's a discussion around the emerging technology, things like self-driving cars, solar storage, batteries, 3D printing, and the impact, if you think about it, that that can have on the streets, on the city, on the way that we work, on the way that we live. If we all have batteries, 3D printing's extremely interesting, the way that that could change Everything. You know, Everyone we could, will have an automatic weapon. Be. Well, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> you can open source a whole lot of farming equipment and you can mm. print it yourself. Yeah. I just saw when you talk about the increased size in houses, I mean, I've worked on a lot of building sites. And the bigger the houses, the bigger the waste output per house. Obviously, you know, there's more offcuts of this and unused bits of that. So that's another aspect of that. But when you talk about casualisation of the workforce, I just imagine skiving off. Yes, Bushy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, now, you've got an affiliation with the Planning Institute. We were going to have a guest on in a few weeks' time. Yeah, uh, so, well, um, I work uh, as a planner yeah. and landscape architect and um, sit next to the president of the Victorian Planning Institute, and he's coming in 
the end of June. Yes. I think. Yeah, he's coming at the, at the end of June to talk planning. So maybe he can talk to us about these mega trends yeah, and what it means we'll for dig a Melbourne. Bit deep on some of it. Mm. Awesome. Yes. In the meantime, so sorry, Adam. Oh, I was going to um, rip off someone else's line and just say just just a word of caution. It's very difficult to make um, <laughs> predictions, especially about the future. Especially. <laughs> I take a grim all with a grain of salt. about the future. <laughs> Indeed. Hey, Don't believe everything you read. No, Abraham Lincoln said that on the internet. And you are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3 Triple R. Our guest tonight via phone is Jackie French. She is a national treasure to gardeners. She has contributed to magazines over many years and is the author of a ton of books, including The Chook Book, The Guide to Companion Planting, Backyard Self-Sufficiency, The Wilderness Garden, and in more recent years she's become an acclaimed author of children's books. I could go on, but tonight we're going to speak with Jackie exclusively on the main topic of her 1995 book, Soil Food, 1,372 Ways to Add Fertility to Your Soil. Welcome to Triple R, Jackie French. Hi. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Um, can we get the ball rolling by chatting a bit about the state of a lot of soils in Australia? But but uh, draw that into the great example that was your place, which you know when you first moved to it many years ago, it was itself a, a fairly neglected and abused patch of earth. Um, yeah, I, I think it's probably best described as actually either blackberry or no soil whatsoever. Um, there was a large a large amount of rock, an enormous amount of blackberry. And um, a lot of orchard and market garden areas that had been in use since about the 1890s and had no soil at all. In fact, the first green manure crop I tried to grow, which was broad beans, grew as high as my little finger, um, flowered, withered and died. So it was really a matter of creating soil where there wasn't soil um, or getting rid of the blackberry and finding underneath the blackberry there was the most wonderful, incredible soil built up from these wonderful deep foraging roots and about sort of 40 years of accumulated blackberry leaves decomposing every time the day bushes lost their leaves. Um, but now it's really interesting. You can't tell the difference between the two areas. It, it, for about 20 years, it was so incredibly different. And also about 20 years, we didn't need to do anything about feeding the trees on the areas that have been blackberry. But, but these days, no, it's, pre- it's pretty much the same. You've got this wonderfully deep soil and the really interesting thing is what used to be bands of clay or bands of shale um, yes I did put loads of bread manure on it, I did put loads of horse manure on it, I um, did put sort of um, dead trees dead wombats um, dead doormats, <laughs> basically anything which had once lived, we call the consignment to the ecology if it has once lived and it's legal throw it, throw it, throw it on but um, it wasn't all that deep but it, it, at no stage probably was there more than about a metre or a metre and a half added. But now um, when you dig down, um, you can dig down at least two, two and a half metres, which is really what we've bothered in the last few years. Wow. And that layer that was shale, the layer that was clay, um, is no more. It is just continuous, continuous good choc- chocolatey soil. Indeedy. Well, it'd be fantastic to talk to you about the number of strategies we can use to follow your lead uh, later, Jackie. But 
for a lot of people, I think we see soil as nothing more than dirt, but it really is much more than that. It's a pretty complex and mysterious substance. Do you want to tell us what it's made of and why it's important? <laughs> well, not really what it's made of. Remember, I wrote the book more than 20 years ago, <laughs> and that was about the last time I read a research report on soil. I wrote the book because no one else had and then went on to do all sorts of other things. And about 10 years ago, they asked me to update it, which I haven't got around to yet, and I almost certainly never will. <laughs> because these days, we do have soil scientists. Um, back in the 1970s, 1980s, when I was basically gathering whatever research material I could, and a lot of it even was written in the 1920s and the 1930s, um, this was a time when soil really was um, not, not brought about. Um, for every ton of wheat, we probably lost about, I think, I think the figure was 6.6 um, tons of soil, where Australians assumed that um, the average farm really was half erosion gully, um, and, that's, and that's really what farms look like. And yet it changed. Um, in the 1990s, um, yes, it changed deeply and profoundly. So, look, I'm certainly not an expert now. As, as I um, said a few days ago when I was sort of um, tactfully trying to say, um, possibly you've got the wrong person. Um, I'm not only not a soil scientist. I'm someone who, if it isn't a new scientist, um, I probably haven't, or Australasian science, um, and it mentions soils, I probably haven't read it, but I still am um, creating soils here and still am actually living with soils. Um, but the other fascinating thing, though, too, is back when I read it, as I said, people people didn't think of soil. Um, I remember when the local uh, weeds inspector came up and Everyone in the valley who was not thinking about soil was so careful to say, "Oh, look, really, 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 they, they, they really know what they're talking about." No, look, she's not, she's not crazy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But these days, um, I, I think I probably know less than any farmer in the district about soil. They know soil deeply, and um, no pun, no pun intended. Great pun, though. Um, yeah, they, 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 they put in swales, um, they plant trees, um, they, they slow down watercourses, etc. Um, they really realise that soil is um, the basis of everything we've got in Australia. Soil, soil and water uh, are really the final constraints, oh, I suppose, in here as well. Let's well, fantastic observation that uh and well lovely to hear that that you're you're observing uh farmers in the area reversing the trend of soil degradation because i think uh it'd be fair to say that we can't really that that soil is fundamental to terrestrial life like basically it's where we get our nutrients from it's where our plants grow and would you say that it would it's, look, it's more than that. But it's also it's also what cleans our water. It's what it's what stores our water. Um, unless you're one of the Australians, actually, like us, come think of it, where um, we you get the water that falls on your roof in your tank, 
you're getting water from a dam and the dam gets that water um, filtered through soil so it's not just conditioning um, the water as it filters through but the soil is storing it um, gradually percolating it so you, so you get an even an even water supply um, if you get a bushfire on that not only do you get the soil washing away but the very soil itself becomes less able to hold the water um, with the soil um, yes it's certainly not something we just grow plants in um, it's certainly not just something that we uh, um, we, we walk on um, even even the role of soil in in conditioning the air around us is important um, I think so too we're now saying that the farmers around here deeply deeply understand their soil I think understanding soil is possibly contagious in the 1978 to 1983 drought um, I remember farmers coming up here and blinking and saying but it's still green even though it hadn't rained um, people talk about farmers as being conservative but in fact, I think they're some of the more radical people in Australia. If you can demonstrate that something works, they will very, very, very quickly adopt it. So around here, you only needed a few enthusiasts, and it became contagious. I suspect there are very large areas of Australia um, where there haven't been those enthusiasts. And um, the, the idea, it's, it simply isn't understood or practiced. But as I've said, um, this, this, is, this is an area I, I really don't know these days. <laughs> well, one of the reasons we wanted you on is precisely because you said you wouldn't get too technical. <laughs> that's, that's, that, that's very safe. I'm not even sure how many of the statistics about the nitrogen level in, in plain tree leaves or something like that I, or that you can um, fix um, if you've got um, water weed in your dams. Um, I'm not quite sure how many of those statistics I can even remember and I don't even have a copy of the book with me. Okay, I've got one here. Well, we might refer to it a bit later on. <laughs> I think I think we can probably assume the statistics are still valid. Plantry needs probably are very terribly much in the in the nutrient nutrient content. Nice. Hi, Jackie. Um, what are the more vital minerals that soil require, um, or more to the point that humans and other living things require the soil to have that the soil then grows our food and keeps us healthy. Ah, now that's an easy one. I don't know, but <laughs> I suspect no one else does either. Um, on most commercial um, things, you, you actually get your nitrogen, um, your, fo your phosphorus, um, your potash, etc. Um, you may, if you're lucky, get a micronutrient mix, which will have all sorts of things. But so often it's called um, old plant syndrome where a crop has been grown for a long time or areas have been cropped for a long time plants simply don't do well and you're looking for micro micro nutrients um, one of one of the things about the old-fashioned um, way of, of growing things where basically you, you throw on things like um, um, dead trees or old doormats um, deceased wombats roadkill etc etc is that in fact, you've got no idea what you're adding, but there is an enormous variety in it. If you are looking for a very, very precise chemical analysis, then um, it gets much more difficult because often you are looking at the most minute traces. Um, I'm like zinc here. Um, 
if it goes just below a certain level, the trees stop, <coughs> the peach trees stop setting fruit. They start having peculiar rosettes of leaves on the top of it. They're, they simply don't thrive. Um, but there are so many other micronutrients we, we don't know about. And also, too, it may depend on the season. Um, if you've got the perfect season where, where the soil is always moist and the roots aren't stressed and you've got the most wonderful um, collection of bacteria um, helping fix nitrogen and make other nutrients available in the soil, um, then you've probably got no problem. But two years later, um, it's a dry year, not necessarily a desperately dry year, but just not an optimum year for those roots. You may find that your soil needs to be far richer in various materials. Um, one of the tragedies, in fact, is that the areas in places like CSIRO that used to be studying this, um, the, they've actually lost their jobs, so we don't know. Um, there used to be the most incredible work being done in the bacteria associated with the roots um, of various native plants like Agocotorinus um, that not just fix nitrogen from the soil but made phosphorus more available. As far as I know, that work is no longer being done. Um, it could have led to... Um, well, to, to, to strands of plants that didn't need um, so much fertilising, but, but did either fix it from the air um, or um, were far more able, particularly in bad seasons, um, from obtaining it from ostensibly phosphorus-deficient Australian soils. But we don't know, and because the funding has been cut, um, unless we get a philanthropist scientist who does it themselves um, or the funding is restored, we're not going to know. Um, mm. Australian soils are not necessarily like the ones overseas. Mm. Well, as you have proved, Jackie, we don't necessarily need to know everything about the soil science before we can um, do drastic work in improving it. So we'd love to talk to you about that when we come back. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Triple R is where you are, and Greening the Apocalypse is the show you're listening to. We are currently on the phone to Jackie French, and we're hoping to focus the second part of our chat with her on some um, close-to-home strategies for soil. Um, hi, Jackie. Now, I live in a kind of bog-standard suburban block, um, and you've mentioned a couple of things that we can do to improve our soil, wombats and doormats. Um <laughs> And I'm just wondering what else I can do. I'm not sure I'm going to find many wombats, dead ones in Preston, but I might find some pigeons. <laughs> Would they work? <laughs> well, pigeon, p- p- pigeon, pigeons will do, but unfortunately they might also attract sort of dogs, rats, etc. I accidentally discovered that coffee grounds were perfect for coffee bushes by very lazily pouring my leftover coffee on my indoor coffee bush and it doubled in size in two months is now heading for the ceiling just on coffee. Though beware, coffee can be too rich for other things. Um, other friends I knew um, went around restaurants. Um, they gave the restaurants uh, special bins to put their, well, not just coffee grounds, tea grounds, um, basically any organic rubbish in, and then they composted it. And then they made this incredible, rich, wonderful compost. 
um, there's green manure. Um, green manure, if it's inoculated with the right bacteria, will fix nitrogen from can, the soil. Can I just interrupt you yeah. for one second? Can you tell me what green manure is? Okay, green manure is when you grow a plant, not to eat it, um, but just for feeding your soil and conditioning your soil. So it's um, usually a good so there are a few um, like, like waffles and, and casuarinas um, that aren't... Okay, let's just go back to a really, really simple one. So it's usually something like um, board beans, something like peas, etc. But they do need to be inoculated with a bacteria that will then be associated with the roots. And so with those bacteria, which will fix nitrogen from the air, be taken up by the plant, um, just when the plant starts to flower, um, you thrash it. Um, do not dig it in. This is not good for the soil or for your back. Um, you leave it to decompose. Mm. And it's one of the main ways that we turn um, shale and clay into soil um, because it wasn't so much just getting the nutrients it was also changing the structure of what we had the stuff which was pretty much like concrete and you needed um, a crowbar to get into it it was really changing that to something that you could literally um, dig with a teaspoon or a tablespoon and the tablespoons usually what I use when I when I plan something out oh um, I do right too <laughs> yeah. One, wonderful wonder, wonderful things a good a good a good sturdy tablespoon from a, from a second hand store when they knew how to make tablespoons. But it, it, it really depends um, what you've got. And it's also a combination of things. Um, the greater the variety of things that you use, the more likely you are to actually get those micronutrients. And particularly if your soil is poor in nutrients, then no matter how much green manure you grow, you may be making nutrients more available. But... Um, you're not actually getting any more. So bringing in someone else's waste is good. In fact, at the moment, um, take take large, large, large sacks, um, go to somewhere where the leaves are falling, sm- smile sweetly at the householder and say, would you like me to take your leaves? Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're not high in any nutrients until they break down. And once they have broken down, um, they're a wonderful way of creating soil but when you're piling it on um, be very careful not to use too much of any one thing whether we're talking about um, dead pigeons um, or um, or leaves because too much of any one thing you can you can get a problem whether it's attracting dogs or whether it leaves it's actually well sometimes they can even catch a light when they decompose um, or they can compact so much that water can't penetrate so what we tend to do here is almost accidentally throw on all sorts of stuff about this time of the year. Um, well, if a tree comes down, for example, that will be thrown under the avocado trees, branches and all. Um, when I finally pull the corn out, that will be thrown in. Then there'll be a pile of leaves thrown on that. Then there'll be the, the cuttings as I pruned up the salvias. And it all means, um, A, it looks like a mess, but also, too, there's a lot of air in it. And air is, air is wonderful to help things decompose. And the live birds digging it over don't do any, um, well, they're pretty good for that as well. So you want something which is not going to attract pests, it's not going to compact, and um, it's not going to start repelling the rain. Um, doormats do decompose, um, but if you cover your 
ground in doormats, probably no water will penetrate for at least 14 or 15 years. So, yes, a few doormats are fine. Too many, too many are not a good thing. So you're just chucking the stuff straight on the ground and not putting it in a bin? Yep, I call it consign it to ecology. We do have actually two compost bins, um, and I do use those for things like kakuya or weeds that have gone to seed, things which really do need to heat up um, to either um, kill, kill them um, or kill their seeds. And by the way, if it isn't warm, it isn't compost, it's just, it's just a mess in a box. Um, but there's, there's not a lot of that. Um, we've got about 800 fruit trees here, and mostly they're just simply fed. As I said, we just call it concern to the ecology. Um, we we throw it on in a reasonably haphazard manner, but because we source it from many, many things, um, it actually works. And one of those things is actually that it's an old English saying: if you want to, if you want to run that 12, 12 sheep to the acre, you run twelve sheep to the acre till you can run twelve sheep to the acre, which means it's actually cheaper to buy um, food for your sheep than it is to buy fertilizer. And we do that with our chooks. Mm. We buy food for our chooks, and the chooks in return um, produce chook manure which then goes under the trees. Um, theoretically, about once every six months. In reality, probably every two years or so, when we actually get round to cleaning up the chook house and then get round to uh, putting the pile of, of, of chicken dung underneath the trees. It's very, very irregular. But again, um, bringing in the food to feed the chooks, um, or for that matter, feeding the wild birds. Um, having wild birds resting on your place is a, is a wonderful way of, of actually attracting fertility. And you can do it just by having a bird bath. It was an old French peasant technique. You had a dovecot. And every day your, your pigeons would go off and forage in the neighbour's fields and they'd eat their leftover crops. And at night they'd come back and roost at your place and you would get the free, the free fertiliser. And we, we can do that in our own backyards just by encouraging the wild birds to live there. I feel far less guilty now about pillaging other people's nutrients and, and leaves from their place <laughs> if birds are doing it. <laughs> No, look, most, I think most people would absolutely love it if you said, "Look, um, can I prune your trees? Can I can I weed your? Um, can I rake up your leaves? Um, would you like me to take your lawn clippings away?" Um, but all of those things are the most wonderful fertilizer once they're broken down and if they're used in the right way, um, and the most incredible soil conditioner as well. And ask them if they're doing anything with the doormat. No, I was just thinking. <laughs> and, and, and the doormat. And you're at it, have, have a look for a few things. Even take cuttings of as well and picking now when they're setting seeds too so have a always well my elderly neighbor um, always said always carry a very large handbag and a pair of secateurs but mm-hmm. possibly if you broke that might be a little bit embarrassing but um a computer case for the pair of secateurs <laughs> indeed um some of our, a lot of our listeners will be on um, very small uh, patches of land or be in a situation where they can't necessarily have uh, chooks to assist with the fertility of their soil. Um, as part of the, the rebuilding process, is there a few off-the-shelf soil feeders that, you, that you've given the tick of approval to over the years, Jackie? Um, not for 25 years, no. 
Right. I can, so I, go, I can tell you a few products that were around 25 years ago. Mm. Um, but no, um, in fact, we're, we're pretty actually self-sufficient in fertilizers, come to think of it. Um, we do give away a lot of fruit. Um, the two of us actually can't quite manage to eat the fruit from 800 fruit trees, <laughs> no, even the wallabies, um, the wombats and the birds. Um, but... We also, of course, buy, buy food for ourselves, we buy food for the chooks, etc. So, thinking it over, sorry. I'm just um, thinking of is, some, some of the seaweed extracts, blood and bone, those sorts of things. Do they have their place? Look, very, very definitely. Um, however, I cannot, I, I, I literally don't think I have bought any for, for, for decades. So look, if it if it's got um, made from um, made from feral carp, made from feral goats, um, if it's got made from from seaweed, if it, if it's reclaimed from um, some nice weed, um, basically if it's got an organic basis, and particularly if it's getting rid of a, something which is a nuisance and turning it into fertilizer, um, then this is probably an extremely good thing to use. But um, I'm afraid I can't. I can't recommend any. Um, well, that's a good sign that you don't I need to. I haven't used them. Fantastic. Well, you mentioned that these kind of strategies where you're putting on things that uh, were once alive uh, bring a whole mysterious array of minerals and we don't even need to really know what the important ones are because you're just cycling what, what the trees and plants need back into the soil, whereas the artificial fertilisers tend to be the NPK you mentioned, the nitrogen... The phosphorus and or, the or potassium. Or other ones. I think the thing to always remember is lots, lots and lots and lots. Um, for a quick fix, yes, the artificial fertilisers are going to give you um, fast growth and what have you. Um, but a trial I did do, and it must be about 30 years ago now, um, growing side-by-side crops with a conventional... Um, um, artificial fertilizer, not just one with the NKP, but one that actually did have a few other nutrients and growing with compost. And there was absolutely no comparison. It wasn't just that the compost ones actually grew more. Um, they needed less watering. Um, they got fewer weeds, of course, because the compost was, was covering covering the weed seeds. Um, they cropped for longer. They got fewer pests. And this was in strips literally side by side, where theoretically um, the pests and the diseases should just be popping over to, to their neighbours. Um, but they didn't. It was dramatic and for anyone who feels like um anyone who's actually tempted by a quick fix artificial fertilizer it's really worthwhile just for one season doing two meter wide test strips side by side um one with compost one with your standard artificial fertilizer and just really see the difference um in in so many factors when you do that um, so do you think that soil is a good place to start to address human health? I have never, ever thought of that question. I think I, think I probably took it for granted. Um, certainly took it for granted that um, health, healthy food um, needs healthy soil. But I think I also took it for granted that healthy people um, need the joy of actually creating healthy food. Yeah. We need, we need, to, yep. we need to actually be connected to it. Um, even even if actually that, that stack of um, suspicious-looking white stuff 
on the shelves really could give me the same growth, etc. Um, it's just fun. It really yeah. is. Um, it is deeply, deeply, deeply boring. Whereas actually um, looking out and seeing, yes, there's a dead pigeon, there is a dead wombat. <laughs> We've got a tattered wombat. We've got a tattered doormat. Um, oh, look, I made soup two days ago. It was it was this great big vat of absolutely glorious soup. And um, it ended up with um, three buckets full of scraps for the chooks. And those three bucket fulls of scraps for the chooks are going to turn into that wonderful chook manure. And that's fun that we got the soup. You don't, you don't, you don't get any soup. Was it wombat soup? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> out, of, out, of, out of putting on white packets from the, from the shelf. <laughs> Indeedy. Hey, uh, Jackie French, thank you so much for giving us your time this evening to talk about soils on Greening the Apocalypse. Um, now, you're currently a children's book author, I understand. I've been reading a few to my kids over the years. <laughs> um, yes, look, I also do write um, books for adults, and some of my books are for young adults or, uh, um, or, or, or for adults. Um, but probably, probably these days better known for the kids' books and work um, advocacy in literacy and dyslexia. Fantastic. Jackie French, thank you very much for your time on Greening the Apocalypse this, after, this evening. Uh, absolute pleasure. Complete pleasure. Right. Thank you. Uh, Jed, thank you for hitting those buttons in the correct sequence as you do. Great to be back. Thank you. Fabulous. Good to see you, Katie. And to you. And Adam, who are we chatting to next week? Next week we will have the animated and opinionated, <laughs> uh, very entertaining, Dino Goodbrew. Uh, he'll be talking about all things uh, regulations in the food industry. He makes uh, kombucha himself and has struggled with the regulatory authorities. Listeners will be familiar with him from uh, Regular Caller on, on the Blower. Indeedy. We will see you next Tuesday. And until then, have all the fun. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.